Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about a retired U.S. general's call for a Burma-style coup in the United States, South Korea demonstrating its geopolitical senses, well, its geopolitical awareness, I should say, and a strange parallel that I've noticed between our century and one past. All that and more, coming up. into the rapid-fire news. So we have uh, the Afghan army clashing with the Taliban. Uh, We knew this was going to happen, as it was already happening before. Although there was a drawdown in the violence after an agreement was secured between the United States and the Taliban, uh, and that was for the May 1st deadline for the U.S. troop withdrawals. Uh, a deadline which we have violated, so the treaty is basically off now, the agreement, and now we have a string of a much more increased violence um, that would have just been between the Taliban and Afghanistan, but now uh, still includes us and everyone else who's still there waiting for America to leave uh, in September now. So we'll see if we actually leave in September uh, I hope we do, you know, it'd be nice if we could, but that will remain to be seen, and like I said in a past episodes where we talked about this, my money's on the Taliban winning, alright, I believe we'll be talking about the Taliban as the ruling government of Afghanistan in a couple of years, that is my belief, maybe the Afghan uh, government will prove me wrong, but I don't think they will. Meanwhile, ASEAN reaches out. uh, ASEAN has reached out to, there we go, uh, Myanmar. Uh, The military opposition is greatly upset about this because ASEAN has reached out to the military junta that's running the government of Myanmar right now. So, the people who are against the military in Myanmar are greatly upset about this, because in in essence, what ASEAN is doing is recognizing the military as the official people in charge of the country right now, and not taking up the side of the ousted democratic government. So, you can see where they would be upset here. Uh, but from ASEAN's perspective, they're, if I had to guess, they're taking the laid-back approach to this situation where they don't interfere or don't get themselves involved in the internal politics of their members and really just make sure that their members are actually members and move on. That's what I see them doing here, because Myanmar is a part, again, of ASEAN. Or are they? Fact check. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Definitely didn't pause the recording and cheat to do that. Uh, 
What? What are you? What are you talking about? I'm prepared here. We're professional here at This Week in Geopolitics, and by professional, I mean expert. Uh, cheater. So <laughs> there's that. So yeah, Myanmar is a part of ASEAN, and the way I see ASEAN going about this is they're not going to involve themselves in the internal politics of their members. They're just going to make sure that their members are actually members and not members in name only. Because when you have this sudden change of who's running the government in one of your member countries, there's obviously going to be question as to whether or not such a radical change in the governance and governance system of a country um, leaves them the same country on the other side. Are they even still down with you or are they against you now? You kind of need to make sure that it's not the second option because that would be bad uh, very very bad especially if you have like traders going in to this country that's supposed to be a part of this trade block and they suddenly get attacked you don't want that to happen so ASEAN is being a bit proactive because uh, the situation the dust hasn't settled in Myanmar yet so I guess it's still fair to call this proactive uh, getting ahead and reaching out to whoever rules the country at the time, which is blatantly and clearly the military right now. So there's that. We'll have to uh, keep our eyes out on Myanmar slash Burma. I keep switching between the two, but eh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that. This situation uh, goes on and it continues to catch the eyes of many because it is very interesting. But if we go just a little bit to Myanmar's west, we have Pakistan. And their Prime Minister, Imran Khan, has called for the political settlement. Um, but, uh, come on now. Uh, let me start that over. The Pakistani Prime Minister, Imran Khan, has called for a political settlement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, um, and he preferably wants this to happen before the full withdrawal of U.S. and allied troops from Afghanistan, because the fear in Pakistan is that the civil war in the, in, not in the Taliban, we'll be calling it the Taliban in a few years, mark my words, um, but, the fear in Pakistan is that the civil war there is going to spill over into Pakistan proper um, because Pakistan has the unfortunate pleasure of being Afghanistan's direct neighbor. A title that is only shared by, what, four countries? Uh, four countries that I can think of at the moment, if my geography, my geographic knowledge hasn't failed me, it is Pakistan, Iran, Turkmenistan, and then there's a little, little, little tiny strip of land where Afghanistan borders China. Um, oh, and there's a little bit of Uzbekistan and a little bit of Tajikistan. There we go. So yeah, I was right. I missed... The borders of this region is a bit weird, especially when you get to the former Soviet republics. Uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan borders make absolutely no sense whatsoever, but we're not going to talk about that. 
Um, so yeah, looking at this map now, I guess I'll just leave it up while I'm talking about the subject. Pakistan's obviously upset uh, with the prospect that people, migrants, are going to be leaving the war zone, which as soon as America didn't leave on May 1st, there was like a wave of attacks across the entire country. They didn't do too much uh, material damage. We covered it on an episode uh, when it happened. But the fact that they were able to carry out operations nationwide like that, and they being the Taliban, uh, really just goes to show who's going to be winning this war at the very end. That's My money's on the Taliban all the way. So... In the process, however, you're going to have these mass events of terror, or at the very least, you're just going to have general fighting until the Taliban wins. Uh, and however much fight the Afghan government puts up um, will determine how long it takes for the Taliban to win. So, there's that. But uh, well, what happens to the people who've caught in the crossfire? Well... If they still can, they're going to leave, and that means leaving to their neighbors, which means Iran, maybe Turkmenistan, people don't, uh, I don't see them moving to Turkmenistan, or, or Tajikistan, or Uzbekistan for that matter, I see them going south, uh, to where there's amenities and resources uh, for them to use, like internet, <laughs> So that means Iran and Pakistan are the ideal choices here. Uh, that in these places have water, which is something that Central Asia is lacking. For lack of a better term, Central Asia is lacking water, and that problem isn't going to get any better. We outline the potential for water wars between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, um, and the potential that that has to be a precursor for other wars over this basic resource in the future. But, yeah, the primary target for people leaving Afghanistan, and they're going to be leaving this next upcoming wave of just fighting, well, actually, the wave is already here, they're going to be leaving, they're going to go to Pakistan, they're going to go to Iran, maybe they'll leave, maybe they won't, but the problem is, if you're Pakistan, you don't want these people coming in anyway... Because you have your own problems with your own ethnic minorities. Um, and you don't need new people adding to the slew of problems, especially when you have religious extremists and people who don't like religious extremists living in close proximity to one another. And you get fighting. Pakistan. The last thing Pakistan wants is to destabilize when they're in the midst of extremely high tensions with India uh, over the Kashmir region. So, Pakistan's in a precarious situation, and they would appreciate not being put in a more precarious situation. Very, very interesting, though. Uh, but I mentioned Iran as one of the other primary locations that people fleeing Afghanistan might want to go to. Uh, Iran has caught my attention as one of their ships have caught fire and sunk in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, I believe, I do believe it was a military vessel, type vessel. Um, it caught fire and it sunk in the Gulf of Oman. 
And as a joking side note, I say, and then they blamed Israel. Uh, <laughs> and then they blamed Israel. Man, Israel's having a bad day. Uh, speaking of Israel, the new government uh, in Israel um, has ousted Benjamin Netanyahu. They have a new coalition. And this one has one of the Arab parties. We talked about this way back when the political crisis in um, Israel happened. Uh, this modern political crisis. When it kicked off, we did a little bit of poll analysis. And by poll analysis, I mean just analysis of the parties involved in the election. Uh, what was the last poll analysis I did? What was that? Italy? Yeah, that was Italy, wasn't it? But yeah, we took a look at the parties that were involved uh, and looked at the possible coalitions that would need to be formed. Now, in that episode, we talked about Benjamin Netanyahu's party forming a coalition with one of the Arab parties so that he could maintain his government and stay in power. But what's actually ended up happening is other parties formed a coalition with the Arabs against him, and now he's on the way out. So we're going to have new leadership in Israel at a time when we're watching, uh, as we've seen over the past few episodes that I've outlined, um, the what I've been able to observe in this region, this tectonic shift uh, radically in favor of, I gotta say it, Iran. Iran's the big winner over this long struggle over the past couple decades in this region. The status quo is over, and Iran is on the way upside of it all. Of it all. Syria is going to be on their side. Iraq is on their side. Arabia is now n trying to get a dialogue going between them and Iran, them and Syria, which makes them semi-neutral. You have Turkey talking shit. <laughs> about Israel over what's happened over what was happening between the Israelis and the Palestinians in that recent bout of fighting we talked about um we saw Egypt take the side of the Palestinians suddenly the Palestinians uh found their allies again and they became martyrs for the Arab world and well not necessarily the Arab world but really the Muslim world, at least in the Middle East anyway. So, in that sense, you have this massive shift uh, that was previously, the status quo was Israel could do whatever the hell they wanted, and no one else was able to really stop them because Arabia was de facto allied with them uh, against Iran. They had the United States backing them. Egypt was pacified after the last war they fought with Israel, and Lebanon's a mess, Syria was a, a mess, well, Lebanon it was, and it continues to be a bigger mess that I, I hope I don't have to talk about, uh, but you have the shatter belt that led straight to Iran f from, again, Lebanon, then you went through Syria, then Iraq. But then in reverse order, that shatter belt is putting itself back together. Iraq is semi-functional again. Syria is almost unified again. 
the civil war is drawing down to a close. Lebanon, we'll have to pray for Lebanon. But, <laughs> but yeah, you have this shift that's largely against um, largely against what used to be something that was pro-Israel. Um, and now Israel is going to be on the back foot for the foreseeable future. We've seen that, but what we have here is a change of government at this same instance. Now, maybe it'll be just what Israel needs, all right? Maybe this sudden change of government, ousting Benjamin and Yahoo, will be just what they need to adapt to this radical shift in their regional environment because it's nothing like what they've been, what they've gotten used to. It's, in a sense, everything they feared, um, especially because Iran's the big winner in it all, and America's increasingly nowhere to be found. Now, granted, Israel can still defend itself just fine, in my opinion. It would take a, it would take a coalition to take Israel down now, and we'll, we'll have to see if a coalition like that ever happens. Uh, because it would involve it would have to involve the other countries around them actually going to war with Israel. Uh, I know the Turks are more than happy to send mercenaries to go deal with the problem, but um, I don't think the mercenaries alone are going to be able to take down Israel unless they just you know evolve over time and become what janissary super janissaries or Turkic Cossacks where they just send them in and they they do the Lord's work for you and then take down the enemy. That's what the Russians did, and maybe the Turks are just taking a page out of their book. Who knows? But yeah, very interesting things happening in the Middle East that have caught my attention in a positive way. I can't stress that enough. But uh, yeah. Then we have... Uh, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Before we leave Israel, their new soon-to-be prime minister is going to be Naftali Bennett. That's his name, and we'll, we'll see how he deals with the mess he's going to inherit. So that's that. Then we have, while well, we're speaking of leaders, we have Kim Jong-un. He has re-emerged from isolation for the 5th, 6th, I forgot which time it is, because uh, he's gone into isolation multiple times over the course of uh, 2020. So he's re-emerged now, and... It seems one of his primary focuses is to deal with the North Korean economy. And, well, we don't really know too much about their economy. We know that they are very strong. We know that their black market is very strong. Um, probably due to restrictions. Heavy restrictions over literally everything in North Korea. But beyond that, we don't really know too much about the North Korean economy. But if he's coming out to deal with it, that must mean there's a problem. And we'll have to see what that problem creates. Because uh, we can't really see the scope of the problem because we can't really see North Korea. As far as we know, they could uh, be gearing up for the going to war path. We don't know. We really don't know. We don't know what the North Koreans are going to do. We, we just know that they're there and that they have a problem. That's really it. So... The world's biggest mystery uh, continues to be the world's biggest mystery. 
But some of their neighbors uh, have gotten into a dispute, though. So while we may not know what the North Koreans are up to, we can we get a better idea of what these two are up to. Russia and Japan have gotten into a dispute over detained Japanese fishermen who are imprisoned in Russia right now. Uh, these fishermen were sea, uh, fishing in, I believe it was the Sea of Okotsk. And if my geography isn't failing me, that's the body of water that sits in the little area where Russia's tail is, um, the Kamkachka Peninsula. And if you look on a map, you find Japan. It's the little body of water to the north of Japan that's almost encircled by Russian land. So that's the Sea of Okotsk. This fisherman has been detained in Russia. And now there's tensions between Russia and Japan. We'll see where that goes. We will definitely see where that goes. Uh, fishermen have... I'll just take a moment to say that these fishermen are... These fishermen are wilding, alright? They're, 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 they're up to something, okay? We saw the fishermen with France. They almost, they almost caused a war between the UK and France. Now these fishermen are out here trying to... Trying to get a repeat of the Russo-Japanese War. <laughs> you, you better keep an eye on these fishermen, man. Okay. But like, what? What? Uh, I don't know what exactly that's gonna result in, cause the, the two don't really interact all that much, Japan and Russia. Um. But given Russia's new a uh, friend, China, I'd imagine the last thing the Japanese want is to make enemies of Russia, even though they'll probably take this situation very, very seriously. I'd imagine they'll probably try to talk something out with the Russians rather than go all in on, we hate Russia. And that'll be the smart move. Because what you don't want is Russia and China working against you because the Japanese are going to have their hands full with this de facto alliance against China that they've willingly and very quickly joined on to. Um, independent of the U.S., I might add. I'll always bring up the 10-year defensive pact that they have with India. That is not something you do when you are reluctant to join an anti-China coalition. And we'll be talking about a country who has gone the opposite direction with regards to anti-China coalitions in a minute. But that's the Russians and Japan. Uh, we talked about, we mentioned China. Uh, and what I'm gonna say now is that they're making a major push. They're making a major push for desalinated water production. And for those who don't know, desalination is where you take salt water and you basically make clean drinking water out of it. So you can actually use it for a lot of things like cleaning yourself. You can drink it. You can use it for like industrial processes. And that's what you do with desalination, but it's an energy intensive process, which is why we don't have much of it right now, despite all the water you see in the oceans, you're seeing 
places struggled to get access to water like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And soon, like Egypt. And I'd imagine that that's going to create trouble. But what we have here is the Chinese uh, attempting to get ahead of their looming water problem. And by looming problem, I mean the looming prospect of the problem getting worse than it already is. And they want to use desalination in the provinces of Liaoning, Hebei, Shandong, Zhejiang, and the city of Tianjin uh, as the places where they're going to be doing this. And they have a goal of reaching 2.9 million tons of clean water a day by 2025. So that's the next five-year plan, I believe. Do they operate in five-year plans or four-year plans? I believe they operate on five-year plans. Uh, yes. So that's probably going to be the a main goal of this current five-year plan that they're on. And we'll see the success of that in the future. Meanwhile, we have Mali, another country who's had a coup. Uh, they've been suspended from the African Union over that recent coup. And I've, I've got to say, it's, it is interesting to watch the differences in the response to Mali's coup as opposed to Burma's coup. Uh, Burma's coup gets all the news. Mali's coup is ignored. Burma's coup is simple and e relatively easy to understand the forces at play. Mali, you have to, you have to do like they do in the movies where they have uh, that board with all the pins in it. They have the pictures, and you you have all the strings that lead here and here, there, and there. You have this web, this tangle of uh, intrigue and whatnot. That's what you have to do to get a grasp over the coup in Mali. Uh, the coup in Burma, you just read a, a paragraph and you kind of have an idea of what's going on there. So, more complex, more complicated, more corrupt, potentially. All right, we, we have yet to see if the claims for election fraud in Myanmar were legitimate, but until that happens, we have a more corrupt, more disruptive coup uh, that has happened in Mali than happened in Myanmar, but all the outrage goes to Myanmar. All the outrage goes to Myanmar, and if I'm not mistaken, these coups have happened over the course of basically the same period of time. So, very interesting watching the difference in responses. Uh, you, one can only wonder why that would be, uh, but I'll digress. Uh, Mali has yet to be sanctioned by the major powers, and I'll, you know, I'll leave it at that. So perhaps there's something important in Burma that's grabbed everyone's attention to the point of, you know, sanctions. But you ignore Mali. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. And we'll see. We'll definitely see. But uh, Turkey, their president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, he has made plans uh, to talk travel, uh, specifically travel access and tourism. He wants to talk about those things with the United Kingdom uh, at a upcoming NATO summit, I believe. And this is further strengthening the UK's 
post-Brexit position, and like I said, them existing as an independent entity, uh, independent of the EU, that mind you, well, all they have to do is behave like a normal country and be mildly successful, and that just throws the entire legitimacy of the EU into question. Because if the Brits can do it, why can't we? And sh- the EU is going to be struggling with that problem for the rest of its life. The absolute rest of its life. And that's assuming no one else leaves. That's assuming no one else leaves. The EU is going to be dealing with this problem for the rest of its life. And there are multiple forces that are pushing countries to lead the EU. Internal forces. Uh, within the countries themselves. I see off the top of my head... Italy, Spain, France. Italy, Spain, France. Those are the countries I see um, that are currently the closest to some sort of critical mass where they just vote to leave. And from that point, they'll have the Brits, the experience that the British went through uh, as a guidebook towards their own secession from the EU. And... All this stems from the British, the UK, just existing as an independent entity. So when you look at it now with hindsight, you can see why the EU was so aggressive and so hostile, uh, especially in the trade talks. Because they can't allow this. People got mad at the EU for not treating the UK like an equal, but... As far as the EU was concerned, the UK was a province just five seconds ago. You want them to treat you equally? That's pretty weird. Pretty weird. But I'll, I'll leave that at that. Uh, we see countries reaching out to the UK, and the UK is taking opportunities where they can find them. And that's how you get stronger. So the UK is going to get stronger, uh, this tourism and whatnot, and they're gonna all oh, the tourism that would have gone to Europe is now gonna go partially to Turkey. That that's what I see, because Turkey is technically still Europe. They have plenty of landmarks that people would like to see, and people aren't allowed to go to Europe anymore because the European Union has basically shut out travel from Britain, travel to and from Britain unless it's commercial. So. The Turks are going to eat up that market share. And the British are going to be happy to give them the money. That's what I see. And Turkey is also doing the same with Russia. Although things are progressing faster with Russia, if I'm not mistaken. So Turkey is getting its tourism back online. And that's pretty good. We're seeing global recovery from the lockdown-induced depressions uh, with countries who are further along in that, being stronger relative to everyone else. And they're taking advantage of that strength. Uh, we talk, We mentioned Russia. Russia and Iran, their deputy defense ministers, have met for talks um, for defense sector cooperation between Russia and Iran. And what we see here is a new country being added to the Eurasian alliance, really, um, between Russia and China. That's 
That's that's those are the the two pillars of this grand Eurasian alliance. And Iran is sucked straight into the orbit because they need to be. They joined onto the Belt and Road very very quickly, and now they're negotiating deals for military cooperation with Russia. And I'm sure at some point there's going to be some caveats where the Iranians look the other way while the Russians reintegrate uh, former Soviet lands to the north of Iran uh, and send a bunch of peacekeepers, just just a couple hundred thousand peacekeepers, you know, just a, just a few million men. Who's, who said anything about occupation? These are free and independent countries is what they are. Just look at the Caucasus. They're free and independent. They're not free and independent. But anyway, <laughs> that's what uh, that's very interesting developments I see in the former, well, not the former Soviet space, but in Eurasia, in the Middle East, and well, the former Soviet space. Uh, Iran's not a part of it, but they're close, so it's kind of weird for me to ch- try to pinpoint, give an accurate location where they are. They're in the Middle East, but. You know, the areas around Russia, okay, the, the areas around Russia, we're seeing lots of action that the Russians are taking advantage of, we're seeing major movements in the Middle East, we're seeing major movements coming out of China, and Iran is just at this perfect point, uh, they're at this perfect, perfect, this perfect crossroads where all three of those intersect, and they are really going in on this. I can't stress enough, the Iranians are playing their cards and they're playing them very well. They're the big winners. They're definitely the big winners for the, this next decade. I'll, that's what I'll say. That's what I'll say, and I'll stand by it until the Iranians uh, do something to prove me wrong, which it doesn't look like they're doing anytime soon. Uh, they'll probably even try to negotiate an arms deal where they get some S-400s from the Russians uh, to protect themselves from those pesky American aircraft and drones, and especially those Israeli drones. And from that point on, we could see a tectonic shift in the military uh, analysis of the Middle East as well. And that would be game-changing. And I guess we'll finish off this segment by talking about how Russia's Sergei Lavrov uh, has expressed doubt that the upcoming summit between Biden and Putin uh, will actually achieve anything. To which I am currently obliged to agree. I Again, I pray that this man doesn't give us another anchorage. We don't need more dishonor and more disgrace in this house. We... <laughs> <laughs> we need glory. That's what we need. So, oh goodness, that's next week, isn't it? Oh, oh, that's next week, isn't it? Oh my goodness, Lord, Lord. I'm gonna have fun after that summit, aren't I? We're all gonna have fun. But uh, meanwhile, we have Malaysia. Getting the Taiwan treatment, uh, they scrambled jets after Chinese planes flew over their airspace. Uh, so, yeah. China getting aggressive in the South China Sea. Russia securing alliances with countries beyond their former borderlands. 
all of that. And that's just the rapid fire news, which isn't so rapid fire right now because it's a lot to talk about. And well, it's fun to go in depth on a lot of these topics. But um, we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, now we're going to get into the meat of the episode. And here we have retired U.S. General Michael Flynn. Now, he has caught uh, attention recently because at an event in Dallas, uh, it was called Forgotten Country, uh, this event where he was speaking at, one of the audience members uh, said during the Q&A session, I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen here. That was the question. Flynn responded, however, saying no reason. Again, the what was said by the person in the crowd was, I want to know why what happened in Myanmar can't happen here, to which Flynn responded, no reason. And then he even went as far as to say, right after that, it should happen. Uh, now later, he denied calling for this coup uh, and said his words were twisted. And I guess I'll say that personally, I don't think his words were twisted at all. Uh, but given that mainstream American news outlets are currently not to be trusted, I wouldn't be surprised if Flynn's words were somehow, somehow twisted. But again, I don't see how they could be given the video wasn't exactly that long, so you don't exactly need to do much to just catch him on... It's really... this. I don't see how he his words could be twisted, is what I'm saying here. But at the same time, our news institutions are so untrustworthy that I really just wouldn't be surprised if somehow that short clip of him saying that we should have a coup like that, you know, paraphrasing. I wouldn't be surprised if it's fake. Uh, somehow, I, I, it's it's a shame that that's the state of our news. But again, I don't see how it could be uh, that his words were twisted. But I'll digress from that. That's the... Man, that, that's what politics does to you. When you say something and then you say the opposite and... People will try to defend both sides of your argument. Oh. But that's why we don't do politics. We do geopolitics because we're better. <laughs> we're better than those other people on that right. Now, what I want to talk about here, though, is the speculation that this situation has inevitably led to. And you know how, you know how I am with my speculation. And that this situation has led me to the question, what if we did have a military coup in America? What if we did have a military coup in in America, the United States of America? The implications, what are the implications? Well, for me, that I can sort of think of, is that they would depend entirely and i mean entirely on the accuracy of the claims that have been made sorry 
There was a bug nearby. But yeah, it would... Whether or not this was good or bad would depend entirely on the accuracy of the claims that have been made. Namely, around election fraud in the 2020 U.S. election. So, if the elections, and this is the first case scenario, if the elections in 2020 were fair and were legitimate, then the coup itself would be damaging. It would do great damage to our long-standing political system of accepting, even if begrudgingly, when you've lost an election. And in turn, it will open the door for the military to get dragged into every post-election situation every time one side loses. And that's not what our military is for. That's certainly not what the Founding Fathers wanted it to be for. And it's definitely not what I want it to be for either. But I could easily see that becoming the new the new normal uh, if this were to happen and if the claims were false. That's one of the ways I see this going. But again, the implications depend entirely on the accuracy. So that's if the accuracy is off, even if just by a little bit. Because you could, it can get out of hand really quickly. However, if the claims were legitimate and there was fraud in the election, then the coup would, in an ironic twist, end up being a positive development for the republic and our democratic institutions. And it's really weird saying that after just describing a situation where our political system basically devolves to Brazil. <laughs> no offense to Brazil, but they have some wacko, they have a very wacko political system uh, where the last couple of presidents got impeached and convicted on corruption charges that could be us, all right? That could be us. That's what I mean when I say that if this coup were to happen and the claims are wrong or false by a little bit, oh, it's Brazil. It's Brazil. Because you would set the precedent and you wouldn't have had it enough behind you to back it up. And then immediately after that, we, if the claims are actually legitimate, that there was fraud in, in the election then the coup would be a positive development. And it would be positive in that it would be forcibly forcibly removing people who aren't supposed to be in power. And having those who were elected rightfully by the people to be properly installed into their rightful positions. So, in essence, a coup would either give power back to the people, in, and that's in the best, best case scenario, because... You don't, that, that's the hardest one to achieve, because if you're wrong by just a little bit, you, you're going to destabilize the country. And that's the best, best case scenario. Uh, you give power back to the people by giving them the people they actually voted for to be put in power. The other side of that, however, is that uh, if you... you you take power away from the people by installing an unelected regime 
to, over election fraud claims that aren't real. That That's the other side of the coin. If we have coup. So you can... You can see how this is a really touchy subject, and in my opinion, given the current political polarization in the United States, and really I'm talking about U.S. politics, because the, at the ground level, eh, the divide isn't as vast as they would have you seem, but the at our politics, people who are involved deeply in the politics... Oh, that divide is huge. That divide is huge, but most Americans want to be left alone and don't don't even want to look at their elected officials, which is an understandable sentiment. The problem is we have to vote for these people, so we have to, it is a responsibility that we pay attention to them. Otherwise, they do stupid things like sell your like let your entire manufacturing base go overseas to China and then continue the policies that led that to happen. Oh. Well, hold on now. I think I've just described a whole lot of people in Congress. Mm. But I'll, I'll digress. I'm digressing a lot, but I'll digress even more. But, um, yeah. It would be either the best thing to ever happen or it would be the worst thing to ever happen to the country. Um, something uh, As far as a domestic domestically influenced an event could be it'd either be the best or it'd be the worst and there's really no in between there that's that's another thing there's no in between there it's either the best thing and we get power back to the people and you get rightfully elected officials or you take power away from the people you get a military junta and you're run by the military and there's no guarantee you're going to get your your democratic institutions back there's no guarantee you're going to get your constitution back there's no guarantee any of that so it's really touchy you could given the political polarization of u.s politics there's a decent chance that the whole thing devolves into civil war before you can you can even state your case as to why you believe the election was illegitimate we could fall into civil war before that even happens and then suddenly you're you mean nothing your coup means nothing especially if you were a minority faction within the military who took control of power well now you really really mean nothing you don't even have the control of the country in de facto so really interesting to speculate on but really dangerous at the same time uh, when you look at the potential implications of it. So we'll have to see where this goes moving forward. Again, Michael Flynn denied having said any of this and said his words were twisted, but he could just be lying uh, through his teeth. Or maybe he was lying when he said that we should have a coup. And by we sh I, I go back to my quote, he was asked, why can't what happened in Myanmar happen here? He says, it should. Uh, well, he says no reason. And then he says it should happen. So that's what he says. So whenever I go on and say he is calling for this, he is calling for that. That's a paraphrase. But I've already given the direct quote. But yeah, very interesting. 
And there is a bit of similarity here with uh, France. Uh, a couple weeks back, there was an open letter by the French military, mainly uh, generals and some people who were active duty in the army of France. Well, they told their government, you either get your shit together or we might have to take control of this shit. So, we'll have to see if that becomes the reality in France. Uh, imagine another thing to think about when you talk about potential coup in France and the United States. Uh, imagine being one of the people in these offices where you're talking down to Burma and Myanmar. Burma and Myanmar, like they're two separate entities. Burma slash Myanmar. Imagine if you do all that, you impose all these sanctions, and then suddenly you're in the exact same position. What about that? Very interesting to think about. Um, yeah. Very, very interesting to think about. Um, but we'll... we'll well, we'll talk about France, their military open letter. I know we had one of those of our own. Uh, it was smaller in scale. And we... Nothing much of the same caliber was called for. They questioned... They called... Straight up called into question uh, the mental acuity of Biden and said he wasn't fit to lead. But that was sort of as far as they go. They didn't say, we're going to step in and take control of the government. Um, like the French, uh, like the French generals basically heavily implied, and I can only imagine they did so deliberately to sort of light a fire under Macron's government. Uh, potentially the last few months he has left in office because this is an election year in France. So we'll see. We'll really see. Uh, so there's some of the parallels between that and France. But there's, of course, the parallels between uh, us and Burma in the event that this were to happen due to the claims of election fraud. And Burma is basically devolved into civil war right now as is. Um, it's not exactly a full-scale civil war. It's more of like the civil war you see in, say, Afghanistan. Uh, that or yeah, Yeah, that's pretty accurate of the civil war that they've basically devolved into. Not very pleasant experience, I'll tell you that much. But Burma is just one of many countries who have had coups. They've had coups. And it raises the question for me, are we in an age of coups? Let's think back. Just recent history. There was a failed, there was Turkey, that coup failed. There was Belarus really recently, that coup failed. There was Burma, that coup succeeded. And then there's Mali, where the coup uh, went even further beyond and super, super duper succeeded. Um, and then there's France, where the coup was threatened. And the United States, where the coup is now advocated for. So let's just take a moment to take that in. That is one, two, three, four, five, six. Six coup attempts of note. Of note. Six coup attempts. 
so we can we can really sort of get a grasp over what I mean when I ask the question, are we in an age of coups? You see all these coups, not all of them succeeded, only like two of them did, but you have all these coups. So what do you do? What do you do? Um, well, obviously, you're probably going to try to put them down, but the fact that all these are popping up at roughly the same time, um, it's very interest. Very, very interesting. And we'll just have to keep our eyes out for more countries who join the roster of the coup. What? We'll really have to see. We'll really have to see, because Turkey's coup was like a while back. Uh, not too far back, but a couple of years ago. And I really just remembered that they had that coup while thinking of the subject matter of the number of coups that I keep coming across while reading the news. So, there's that. Um, yeah. That's, that's it for the advocated coup of, uh, attempt in the United States by General Michael Flynn. We covered some of the some of the potential repercussions of that. But now what I want to get into is South Korea, who has basically refused to be a part of an anti-China coalition. And here's how. Well, here's what's led me to believe that I'll say. Um and uh, yeah, yeah, I've been observing some peculiar activity out of South Korea as of late, and I gotta say, they've been they've been talking the talk with regards to the alliance between them and the United States, but when you look at actions, well, we all know those speak louder than words. And when you look at actions, you see them reaching out to North Korea with some limited success, uh, which in and of itself is more impressive than they're making out to be. Uh, it's more impressive when you remember that this is North Korea. All right. They're reaching out to a country that they've fought a war and almost lost to twice in that same war, a country they're reaching out to that is still technically at war. Still technically at war, and they're having limited degree of success in reaching out to North Korea. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty interesting, you know. They talk the talk, but then you look at their actions. They're reaching out to North Korea of all places. North Korea, and I, I say that's a positive development for the peninsula. Uh, but maybe they'll even get a formal peace treaty, and maybe even one day they'll form a, a Korean confederation. Who knows? But they're reaching out to North Korea. They're reaching out to China. For trade, they really like the trade with China. 
they're reaching out to Russia to a limited degree, a much more limited degree, but they are there. They're really, really more so cozying up to China than anyone else. Uh, and that's probably because they're, they've thrown their lot in with the big boy on the block. So there's, there's that, but interesting, I'd say almost more interesting than seeing who they're kissing up to is who they're shutting out. And the South Koreans are shutting out Japan. Um, To anyone who knows the history between South Korea and Japan uh, knows that Japan wasn't exactly very nice during World War II. So South Korea hates them. They hate them with a burning passion. But that hatred was sort of glossed over when they were both enveloped into the U.S. alliance system. But now that that alliance system is falling apart at the seams, um, both from external factors and from internal factors, within just the United States alone, let alone other countries opting to go their own way, um, South Korea is throwing their lot in with China, and... They're not holding back. They're not holding back their punches against Japan anymore. Um, so it may seem they're reaching out to China, but not Japan. They're reaching out to North Korea, but shutting Japan off. South Korea and Japan are at peace. North Korea and China, not North Korea and China. North Korea and South Korea are at war with one another, and yet the South Koreans are able to get. Japanese bananas. What well, not Japanese bananas? <laughs> Where did bananas come from? I'm sleepy. That's what's happening here. I'm sleepy. But really think about that. They're reaching out to countries that they've been occupied by before Japan came onto the scene. They used to be a protectorate of the Chinese. Uh, they used to be a tributary state. Of the Chinese. They are. They were almost wiped out of existence. By the North Korean army. Who was backed up by China. When they got almost wiped out the second time. And North Korea is still technically at war with South Korea. There is no peace treaty between those two. And South Korea would rather reach out to them. Than Japan. And that says. A lot. That's that says a lot. And with the U.S. increasingly out of the picture, that goes from saying a lot to saying everything you need to know. Everything you need to know. They're shutting Japan out, and then they're just going through the motions with the United States, and United States, a country that they've literally been in alliance with. Since the Korean War, the same war where America kept them from losing their sovereignty twice. And my immediate response to noticing this development was, well, duh, of course they would do this. Of course they would do this. They'd be suicidal not to. They would be suicidal to do otherwise. To try to fight China and North Korea, and buddy up 
and try to patch over relations with a country whom your own people despise that that that's asking for that's asking a lot of South Korea that's a super tall order that I'm not entirely sure the Koreans the Korean government could pull off it's just too much the South Korean people like China more than they like Japan the South Korean people are in favor of eventually having a unification with the North, and South Korean people despise Japan. So the position that they have taken is one that appeals most of their population, but also sort of gets them closer to the emerging dominant power in the region. So, when you take a look at this, um, you see, uh, potentially what I see, because my main takeaway from this all, from all this, in this situation, is that South Korea is really exemplifying the core of geopolitics. Where you are matters, and it matters a lot. And interestingly enough, the South Korean leadership was wise enough to both understand this and act accordingly. Because when we look on a map, let me get my trusty, dusty Google Earth right now. When we look on a map, when we look at where South Korea is, they have North Korea on the border, straight to the north. They have China enveloping them from the west, the southwest, and the north and northwest. They have Russia to the far northeast, but Russia isn't getting to them anytime soon. Japan, on the other hand, who enveloped them from the east and the southeast, can get to them very, very easily, and even if they were farther away, the Japanese could get to them very, very easily, because the Japanese have a 60, uh, 60 combat, I was about to say combat width, I've played too much Hearts of Iron 4. The Japanese have a long-range navy. They have a very, very powerful navy. And if we're just looking at East Asia, the second most powerful navy in the region. You know, when we're just looking at the countries who are in the region, not, say, the United States, who isn't in the region, but sends its navy over there. If we're just looking at the powers within the region, Japan is... Number two in terms of the size of their navy, but perhaps number one in terms of its capabilities. But if you have China, but China, countries like China have been developing anti ship missiles, hypersonic anti ship missiles. They have land based air assets and lots of them. They've been building up their military almost for the sole purpose of denying access via naval, well, via the waters. That's what the Chinese have done with their military. So by cozying up with the Chinese, and this isn't like a military alliance or whatnot, but should anything like that develop, well, what are the Japanese going to do? They're going to get too close and they're going to get bombed by all those Chinese anti-ship missiles. 
whom the South Koreans could use their technology to help better locate enemy ships. Just a potential way this could all shake down. But it's very, very interesting, the decision that the South Korean government has made, because very often you'll notice that something could be blatantly in the interest of a country, and their government will turn it down. They won't do it. They'll go the other way. Mm. It's... I, I can't stress enough that how interesting it is to watch. Um... I mean, we, we talk about the world changing all the time, but this is it. This is what this podcast is all about, documenting, really, because uh, things like this give me a whole lot to talk about, uh, and it's very interesting to watch. Uh, I keep saying interesting, but no, I'd, fascinating, intriguing, what have you, it's things like this that shape the world around you and eventually shape the history books that y your kids are going to read. So that's why uh, history and geo, well, current events interest intrigues me so much. It's like modern day history. And I am a history nerd. And what we have here is South Korea exemplifying the core of geopolitics. And really the return of realpolitik Realpolitik, there we go. Uh, and that's basically the other word for geopolitics. And we've been watching this uh, return happen right before our eyes over the past few decades. Uh, well, actually, in... Yeah, yeah, in the past few decades. The past two, I'll say. Because the past few decades before that, it was the game of great powers and the superpowers. Uh, geopolitics but now in an era where you don't necessarily have a superpower who can do literally anything that they wanted around the world because the world is sort of caught up to their edge you're going to get multipolarism multipolar worlds where you're going to have a slew of great powers and spheres of influence around them and those spheres of influence are going to clash eventually because what one person wants, another person has. And whether or not that person is even able to share because they're under the tutelage of someone else, well, that just breeds conflict, now doesn't it? And then there are those who play their cards so that they don't have to go to war unless it's absolutely necessary. Countries like Switzerland. Countries like, increasingly, Qatar, who's trying to make themselves into what I call the the Switzerland of the Middle East. Switzerland of the Middle East. Banking and all. That's what that's they appear to be aiming to do, and they're, they're mildly successful at it. And now we have South Korea taking stock of where they are in the world, and their government getting it. Their government gets it, and they've acted on it. And it's going to be very, very wild watching governments from around the world start to also catch on to the fact that where you are matters, and it matters a lot. But I guess now, take this moment uh, to sort of bring up other parallels I brought, sort of other parallels I've noticed between 
this era we're living in right now and an era that I've come across in my study of history. Uh, give me a second. Oh, I got a sip of water. But yeah, an area I've come across in my study of history, and that's the revolutions of 1848. Are we in this period all over again? I talked about us being in an age of coups, where everyone's having a coup now. But are we in this new revolutionary period right now? Because uh, we see internal struggle within a vast number of countries, and that struggle threatens to shake up their political systems. And in some instances, cough, cough, Burma, cough, cough, Libya, cough, cough, Syria, cough, cough, uh, Mali, and I guess cough, cough, the United States too, we, we've seen that these internal struggles have already shaken up the political systems to the point where changes are being made. And, and I've drawn some of these parallels um, uh, well I'll actually have drawn parallels between the way liberal forces were treated back in the day uh, in the 1800s and today the way conservative forces are being treated today I know everyone likes to immediately jump to Nazi 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 whenever their political opposition does something that they don't like but my study of history has found that there's plenty of other more accurate examples for things that we find around us. Like the current situation of the United States isn't so much the failing empire, um, like, say, Great Britain, but I see it as being more akin to France under Napoleon III. And eventually some big bad Prussia is going to come along and after we've spent decades of bullying countries who were smaller than us and thinking we were strong, we get humbled by a peer power who then grows beyond anything we can imagine. And it's a humiliating shock. That's what I fear is going to happen to us at the rate that we're going. And you can see that that's a much more accurate comparison than to the generic rise and fall of empires. Or at least in my opinion it is. And I've drawn parallels between the way liberal forces were treated back in the 1800s and the way conservative forces are treated today. They're treated as heretics and outcasts and something to be resisted at all costs. And it's very interesting to see that sort of reversal of roles now because you see right-wing movements sort of on the rise around the world. Whereas back in the 1800s, it was the left-wing movements who were on the rise. You had the French Revolution and the American Revolutions. And then that sort of, especially the French Revolution, which sort of kick-started um, waves of liberalism across Europe, especially because wherever the French army went, they would take those laws with them. People got a taste. And then the monarchies after the defeat of Napoleon, the defeat of Napoleon, were stuck with these people who said, hey... Maybe we should have a little bit of what they have. And they repress them brutally. Uh, we, haven't gotten, we haven't exactly gotten to the brutal repression of conservatives today, but you can sort of see the parallels where conservative forces are on the rise around the world and more left-wing forces are panicking about it and trying to do everything they can to stop it, but ultimately not being able to. And simultaneously, a lot of them not being able to 
cope with that idea. And eventually, I think you'll find someone who can and who will learn to use the forces of the time to their advantage. Someone like Bismarck, but for the 21st century. Oh, I almost said 20th. But yeah, um, we even have Europe still being a spectrum of the liberal West and the conservative East. Uh, and I'm talking, yeah, but it seems to me like Eastern nations, and I'm talking specifically Asia, they seem to be the ones at the forefront of this new industrial revolution that we're headed into. And I'll say it myself, there are certainly leaders in manufacturing and increasingly leaders in technology. Uh, and technology being the cornerstone of what we believe the next industrial revolution is going to be. Uh, mass technologic ba technological based automation. And my another question I have in my head is will we see the 1800s play out in a very weird reverse of everything we saw in the 1800s themselves? Conservatism on the rise and it is the east who's just dogging on the west with and then that just gets accelerated by an industrial revolution and they're the first to industrialize and we're left as non-industrial entities and we wonder how a hundred thousand men can get taken down by five thousand mm. who knows who really knows especially when you think about what will the world look like on the other side of it all will we see multiple east asian empires that span across the globe will we see china just annex all their neighbors will russia be the chief benefactor of all this technological exchange because they have territories over there and they basically get free access to the technologies before it diffuses to the wider world just like they did with european weapons and technology um, as they expanded east will they be a big winner will they fall apart will china Will Japan be relegated to a backwater? Because they get, you know, basically blockaded by a much, much more vast Chinese armada? Will the Indians build a fleet? Will they build a maritime empire too? Or will they build, just focus on building a fine land army? What will the world look like on the other side of all of these changes going on? I don't know. All I know is that the world is changing. And I know that we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Aishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.